Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. I love this week's guest, Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. He has been on the podcast before, so many of you know and love him, and I'm lucky enough to call him a friend. In fact, I had a decision to make about the podcast a few months ago, so I asked his advice, and he got back to me straight away with some incredible wise words. So he really is the genuine, kind person that you see in the media in real life. And that isn't always the case, is it? But he hasn't always been happy. And in this episode, we chat about what he's learned about happiness and what's really important in life. And he vulnerably shares about his father and how that's informed how he lives his life today. You're going to learn so much in this episode. And it's not just the usual things that you might think about when we talk about happiness. So I really hope that listening to this helps you think differently about happiness and what's important to you. Here it is. Well, Rongan, it's an absolute delight to have you back. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of everything you're doing, putting out there in the world. So it's, yeah, real honour to be back on your show. And I'm really, really excited for this conversation. Well, I wanted to start by thinking about global context, because clearly we're having this conversation in, you know, one of the most challenging times recently. We've just come through a pandemic. We've now facing war in Europe. How do you approach the idea of wanting to create more individual happiness for ourselves and yet knowing that there is so much suffering going on elsewhere in the world? How do you hold that duality? I think it's a great place to start. On the surface, it would appear quite contradictory that how can we be focusing on our own individual happiness when there's so much heartache going on in the world? And there's a couple of things to say about that. Yes, as we record this, there are some very, very worrying things going on that you know the news is shining into our rooms multiple times a day, every day of the week. But there have always been worrying and toxic things going on in the world, some we are very aware of, some that we're not so aware of. So I'm not at all in any way trying to diminish what is going on. I think the most helpful way to really get my viewpoint, I guess, across on this is to help people understand what this concept that I call core happiness is. So I contrast core happiness to something called junk happiness. I feel core happiness is what we all want as humans, as opposed to junk happiness, which sometimes gets mistaken for real happiness. So what is core happiness? Core happiness, we can think of it as a three-legged stool. Each of these legs is essential. They're separate legs. They're each essential. And when you are not working on one of them, or when one of those legs starts to break and starts to weaken, 
our feelings of core happiness will start to collapse, basically, which is what is happening in many people's lives at the moment. And those three legs are alignment, control, and contentment. So alignment is when your inner values and your external actions match up. So when the person who you really want to be inside and the person who you are actually being out there in the world are one and the same. Contentment is when you feel at peace with your life and your decisions. It's that sense of calm, that sort of deep contentment. We know when we feel like that. And the third leg is control. Now, you know, we can talk about that later if you want to, but essentially the control leg is about recognizing that the world is inherently uncontrollable. I thought long and hard about this word control because it can be misinterpreted. Is he asking us to control the world? No, I'm not. We can't control the world. We cannot change or control circumstance. But control is about what are those things that we can do, ideally on a daily basis, that give us a sense of control over our lives. And I think that leg is particularly important in response to your question. The world currently feels out of control, right? You know, let's say you are watching what's going on in the Ukraine and you are really, really struggling with that. People are getting anxious, they're getting stressed out. Some people are sitting there in front of the news for hours just watching over and over again. Now, first of all, I don't think that's helpful for anyone watching it continuously. You can recognize that there's some really awful things going on. You can recognize that, you can accept that, you can feel bad about it. You can feel grateful for your own life. But if you allow that then to send you into a spiral of negativity and depression, that not only affects your life and your levels of happiness and your stress, that impacts everyone around you. If you're a mother and you're doing that, that then impacts how you are able to parent your children, how present you can be. You know, I understand people are worried about the future. They're worried that they've got kids you know, the world seems pretty toxic and divided. I understand that. I'm a dad of two young children. But actually, Zoe, I think that this idea of happiness, and in particular, core happiness, I think it was important six months ago. I think it was important two or three years ago. I actually think it's even more important right now than it ever has been before, because this is about what can I do on a daily basis that's going to work on, yes, my levels of core happiness, not directly. That's the beautiful thing I think about happiness is you don't really work on it directly. You work on these three legs of the core happiness still, which I outline in the book and give people loads of practical tips. And the side effect is going to be that you generally feel more content, more calm, more happy. So there's a lot more I could say about that. But do you think that answers your question, Zoe, in terms of how you put it across? Yeah. And it reminds me of one of my favorite, I guess you would call it a prayer, which is grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, I picked that up from my 12-step work, but I think in this situation, I really think about that. I can't change what's going on in the world but what can I have the courage to change within my little world? You know, I've been delivering nappies to a depot near us where they're going to be delivered to Poland for the people that are escaping. So I think thinking about it in that way, you know, we cannot change what's happening, but how can we change what we're doing 
that's how I think about it. And I find that really reduces that anxiety in me, you know, and why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Well, it is. What do I need to do now? What I love about that, Zoe, first of all, thanks for sharing that prayer. I've heard it before from people who have been through 12 steps and I've always found it very, very inspiring to hear that. Very, very powerful. But what you are demonstrating there is instead of spiraling into negativity and anxiety, you are recognizing that you can't control it, but you're doing something that's given you a sense of control. Like you are donating something that you believe at the point of donating it is going to end up where it needs to and help. So you're giving yourself a sense of control, which strengthens one of these three legs of the core happiness store. So you're making yourself happier. But what you're also doing is, and this is what chapter 10 in the book's around, it's called Give Yourself Away. It's this idea, the first nine chapters, the first nine principles are about, yes, what things can you do yourself to help you feel a greater sense of calm, contentment, and alignment. But then, you know, in the final chapter of the book, I make the case that actually, we know that people who do things for others are considerably happier than people who don't. The selfless act is actually, in many ways, a selfish act. Not that I mean that it's selfish, but you know what I'm trying to say? It's kind of like actually do something to help people feel as though you're making a difference and it will come back onto you. So that will help someone else and it's going to help you feel better about yourself, about your life. You know, you'll make better lifestyle choices on the back of it. You'll be a better mother on the back of it. I know for me, I'm a better podcast host or, or, you know, when I do things like that. But the other thing that this opening sort of theme brings up for me, Zoe, is like I firmly, firmly believe with every sinew in my body that the way we make change in the world is by changing ourselves. I believe that now more than I have ever believed it before. You know, I've really done a lot of reflecting about this. You know, I've had a public profile for maybe seven years now since I first went on BBC One. And as part of that process, you know, I've seen a lot. I interact a lot on social media, probably a lot more than I do now. And I've always seen a certain toxicity around or a certain let's put people down or let's bolster my argument by putting someone else down along the way. Now, I've never knowingly done that. I always try to conduct myself with kindness, compassion, and respect, even when someone may be disagreeing with me or being potentially quite vulgar to me. You know, if I'm feeling triggered and I'm unable to respond in that way at that moment, I don't respond. I've learned that wrong. And you know what? You need to wait until the emotional sting has come out of this before you respond, because I know that what we do has a ripple effect. So when David Hamilton came on my podcast to talk about kindness, maybe a year and a half ago, he shared with me some incredible research that, you know, one act of kindness, because of the ripple effects, when you're kind to someone else, they are then likely to be kind to, let's say, five more people in the day. Those five people are more likely to be kind to five more people. And he made a very compelling case that one act of kindness can lead to 125 more in one day. And my whole approach in all of my books, including this one, is about small things that make a big difference. It's that ripple effect. So coming back to what you're talking about, 
yes, there's all kinds of problems going on in the world, right? It can be worrying and anxiety-inducing if we spend too much time there. Now, if you are feeling that, be honest with yourself, you know, recognize that that's okay. One of the legs of the soul is alignment when you are living in the way that you're actually truly feeling. Positivity in all circumstances, it's not called happiness. You know, actually, just on a slight aside there, you can be sad and be working on your core happiness, right? So let's say you've gone through grief. I know many people have done over the last few years. You know, here's the reality. If you're feeling sad that someone you care for is no longer with you, it's okay to feel sad. You don't have to just put on a brave face. In fact, if you put on a smile everywhere and say, oh, you know, I'm cool with this, I'm over it now, everything's okay. Well, actually, I would say you're weakening the alignment leg of that core happiness stool. If you actually can sit with your sadness, and if you're lucky enough to have a friend or a family member who you can literally completely take all your masks off and be yourself with and say, you know, I really, really miss that person. I'm gutted. I feel sad. I feel like having half a bottle of wine to get through this, but I try not to. You know, if you really express who you are and be present with that, you're aligned in that moment. You're strengthening the core happiness leg of that stool. So I think that alignment piece is really, really important. Which of those three legs of the stool have you had the most transformation in? I think which of those three legs has had the most impact on me would probably depend on which phase of my life I'm talking about, because this is a continual process. It's a journey. It's not like a one hit where you you hear this podcast or you read my new book and you go, oh, I've got it now. I've cracked it. No, no, no. These are tools to keep applying into your everyday life. So let's go through them and I'll try and figure out if I can give you an answer. Because at the top of my head, I can't tell you which one more than the others. Because I think, I think let's say six, seven years ago, I think I used to try and control everything in the world. I used to think, well, if I do that, then I can make sure that happens that way. And A, it's not possible. But B, I think it created a lot of tension and just this low-grade background stress in me and my interactions, probably in, in my marriage as well, if I'm honest, that part of my personality. And I've learned to let go and really focus on, actually, what are the things in my life that I can control? And I've really got pretty good at not worrying about things that are out of my control. It's been a practice, but... I can't remember what it was. Even today, something happened. And yesterday, and I thought, I really feel I've skilled up in this ability to choose my response in any given moment. No, I've got a choice there. I can choose to get stressed out and annoyed by this, or I can choose to look at this a different way. So that, I would say, has been a big shift for me. Alignment, for sure, over the past few years, has been big for me. Alignment, this idea of living a life that's in keeping with who you are. Living an authentic life, frankly, is has been so important. You know, I don't know if we've ever spoken about this when I've come on your podcast before. I don't think we have, but you know, as we record this, we're about a week or two away since dad died. It's almost nine years now to the day. And like for many people, that was one of those, you know, losing a parent. I actually don't like those terms anymore, losing or passing. It's something that I've learned through my podcast that we we often hide from death and use 
language to soften it. But no, let me say it how it is. It's nine years ago since my dad died. That's exactly what happened. He died. He was no longer here on planet Earth in the form with which I knew him to be, right? That's what happened. And because I'd moved back to the Northwest from Edinburgh, where I was at medical school, to help my mum and my brother look after dads, you know, for 15 years, pretty much, I was a carer for dads for most of my adult life. And I lived five minutes away and I would see dad three times a day. So when dad died, this was a huge hole, yes, emotionally in my life, but also kind of in my day-to-day life, there was this big hole of time where I would be seeing dad or shaving him or getting him ready or whatever. And I would go for walks, Zoe, and I would just go and reflect and think. And I don't know quite how this started, but I came to ask myself these existential questions. You know, whose life are you living? Are you living your own life? Are you living someone else's life? That all led to where I am today, which is where I feel I'm living a very aligned life. I am I'm not fully there yet, that's for sure. You know, am I exactly the same person on and off the mic? I certainly try to be. I think I am 95% of the time. But are there certain things that I probably still feel nervous to share in public? Yeah, probably, if I'm being honest. But let's say I'm 95% there. That's relative to maybe being 10% there nine years ago when I actually think I was just a pathological people pleaser. Everything I did was for other people to get that external validation from other people. Oh, yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, no problem. I'll do that for you. I'll do that for you. I describe myself now as a people pleaser in recovery because I'm not anymore. I'm just not. I've worked hard at it and I still care deeply for other people. But now I understand something called boundaries, which is something I didn't even know what that term meant. I was brought up in a household that we don't have boundaries between family members, you know. So I would say these days, I feel that a lot of my actions are aligned with my inner values. I'd probably say strengthening those two legs have done more for my levels of core happiness than anything else. Thank you for sharing about your dad. I found that really moving when you were sharing just those tiny actions of love, like shaving him and getting him dressed and I just think being a carer is just such a undervalued, incredible gift. And I'm wondering what you learned about happiness from your dad and from that experience. I think it's a double-edged sword, actually thinking about dad and his life. Because, you know, the context here is that my dad was born and brought up in India. And in 1962, he came to the UK when the you know UK government were trying to recruit doctors from the Indian subcontinent because there was a shortage here. One of the reasons there are so many doctors in the UK with Asian backgrounds, one of the reasons is because they were actively recruited in the 60s and 70s to fill workforce gaps over here. And dad came over, left his family, left his friends in search of a better life face all kinds of racism and discrimination, things that he never, ever told me about till pretty much he was on his deathbeds. And dad worked incessantly. You know, I think I open up chapter one of the book with a pretty powerful story about my dad because I basically make the case and I firmly believe this, that overwork, this kind of want brain, as I call it in the book, drive for success, killed him. No question at all, it killed him. And dad was unhappy for his entire life. I know that. He worked, in his words, like a madman 
first of all, dad did a job that I didn't even know about until a few years before dad died. So dad came over, he was in Obzengaini. And I found out just before dad died that actually the reason he moved speciality was because he said, look, I kept training all the local doctors. I would teach them how to do operations. And then two or three years later, they jumped me, get the promotion. And this kept going on year after year after year. And this is so common. You'll hear this story a lot from doctors from India and other countries in that time period. And so dad, to give his family security, he moved to a speciality that frankly, he didn't enjoy at all, but he did it so he could make consultants and have that sort of stability. And I only found out, uh, Zoe, after dad died, I've spoken to some of dad's old colleagues. They said, your dad was such a brilliant surgeon. He was so meticulous, so good. I was like, I didn't know any of this stuff. I don't consider my dad a surgeon because I never knew him as that. So dad moved speciality. So he, he works as a consultant in Manchester Royal Infirmary. And I remember this. So he would come home at maybe 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening. And then mum would give him dinner and then he'd go upstairs, he'd shave, come back downstairs, a car would pick him up at 7pm, he'd be out all night doing GP house calls, he'd arrive back at 7 in the morning, he'd go up and shave again, have breakfast and drive into Manchester. He did that for 30 years. So my dad only slept three nights a week for 30 years. Even as I described that, I just can't imagine what must have driven him to do that. Like, yes, he wanted to give us a good life and I had a fantastic education and start in life. On the outside, I will say, on the outside, you know, I never saw my dad, but on the outside, I had a brilliant start and a brilliant education. So, you know, the impact that had on me and my brother, that impact that had on my mum, who was by herself a lot of the time in a different country, without friends and family support. That's only becoming really clear to me as I get older. And I am at the stage of my life with my kids where I think, oh, wow, what must this have been like for you guys when you had young kids? That taught me a lot, particularly now when I see tendencies in myself to potentially overwork sometimes. I'm like, hmm, it's quite interesting, Wrong, and you've written a book about this, you're reflecting on dad. Have you absorbed some of these patterns? Probably, but I feel I'm quite aware of it. So one of the things I've learned from dad is don't kill yourself working, right? Which is quite, in some ways, a trivial lesson, but I don't think it is. I think it's happening a lot across society. We know with rates of stress, rates of burnout, it all feeds into this. What do we think happiness is? What do we think we need to be happy? Oh, a better job, a better holiday, a nicer car, a flashier phone, the latest branded shoes, whatever. No, no, no. Sure, if you want to get those things, get them, but don't mistake them for happiness. Happiness is completely different for most of us. So I've learned that from dads. I've also learned that when dad did get ill and he was on a dialysis machine for 15 years because his kidneys failed. So for 15 years, dad had to go on a machine for five hours, three times a week. You don't have a choice. You can't just choose, hey, today I'm not going to go you'd be dead in a few days. It's playing the role off your kidneys. So my dad, probably an hour there in the ambulance, getting set up then by the nurses, putting the needles in your arm, five hours there, getting everything taken out, about an hour back. You're looking at seven and a half hours, three times a week off your life where you're just sitting there. And dad lost vision in one of his eyes where he's just sitting there and thinking. And you know what? He never complained once. 
never complain once. Now, what's another thing I've learned from my dads? Well, I've learned that, you know what? I think my dad did a lot of reflecting on that machine and when he was ill. If dad was here now, I've got so many questions I'd love to ask him. But I think he probably reflected on how lucky he was in many ways. And it was pretty remarkable that he never complained. And he seemed to accept what had happened to him. So I think I can learn a lot from that. Dad would always treat people really, really well. You would never, ever see my dad be anything but polite, kind, helpful to other people. Now, was dad a people pleaser, right? And so did that come from the wrong energy? Look, I honestly don't know. You know, I've got a lot to think about after this conversation, Zoe. I don't know, but I definitely watched my dad be respected by people because of the way he behaved and the way he treated people. And I'd like to think I've learned that from dad, you know, to be fair, also from mum. I feel I very much learned that growing up that that's important. And that's one of the important things I try and teach my children is, sure, share your good grades with me, whatever. But I want you guys to be kind and compassionate to every single person you meet, no matter who they are, no matter what you think they can or can't do for you. That is the most important thing in my eyes. And so, yeah, I've learned a lot from dads. I mean, we could do two hours on just the ins and outs of dad's life, but I guess those are some of the learnings that are coming up to my mind uh, straight off the bat. Such a beautiful answer, Rongan. And I wanted to ask you about your dad because I was so moved with how you wrote about it in the book. And I'm wondering, you know, having learned about what happiness is not, and I wonder if this is just part of a rite of passage of life. And if you just get some lucky people like you and maybe me a little bit and get to this maturity, which I think is what you talk about in the book of realizing what happiness is and what it isn't. Because when I was in my twenties, I really thought it was that one brain that you talk about. I really thought that if I could get another promotion, if I could get a better car, if I could buy a house, which is my dream in my twenties, if I could, then I would be happy. And, you know, I really learned about that when then game that it just doesn't work because I got some of those things, right? Just the same as you got some of those things and your dad got some of those things. It didn't make me happy. Yeah. Don't you feel like we're just sold this lie societally? We need that lie to keep the capitalist society going. Does part of you feel, particularly when you think about your dad, does part of you feel angry about that? Is there an activist sort of stance in this book as well about changing that and helping people accelerate that learning that you and I, and to some extent your dad has been through? I mean, there's so many threads to what you just asked me there, Zoe. I think it is a societal problem. No question. We are conditioned to think like this. There's no part of me that can soften that or try and be diplomatic about it. I think you've nailed it. It is the capitalist society. It needs that. We need to feed this, what I call the want brain, this system of desire inside us that's basically from the stone age that makes us think that actually we need to be better than the people around us. We need to compete for limited resources. That's what's going to keep us alive. Now, sure, maybe that was relevant a million years ago. But for many of us now, and I appreciate not everyone in the world, but for many of us, Actually, that's no longer relevant. The want brain tricks us into thinking all these things are going to make us happy. And then, as you say, many of us end up getting them and still feel this emptiness and this hollowness inside and go, well, 
hold on a minute, I've got everything. Why do I still feel worthless inside? And this is my life, no question. Let me tell the story of my childhood, and then maybe this will make it a bit clearer. As I mentioned, mum and dad were immigrants to the UK, faced all kinds of problems. But as many people listening to this will know, the kids of Asian immigrants often tend to do really well academically. I don't think there's anything controversial about saying that. I think many of us would recognize that. Now, as someone who grew up in a family of Indian immigrants, I hate that word immigrant, frankly, but I guess it's even a way of describing this. You know, parents born in India come to the UK. I was born in the UK. The mindset is very much, I don't want my children to face what we've gone through. So the way we avoid our kids having to deal with this heartache and struggle and discrimination is by excelling in academia. So if I would come home, Zoe, and I would have 19 out of 20 in a test, my parents would say, okay, fine, but why didn't you get 20 out of 20? If come back with 99%, sure, why didn't you get 100? What did you get wrong? Now, I absorb the idea that I'm only worthy. I'm only enough. I'm only loved when I'm top of the class and I get full marks. Now, what's really interesting is mum and dad didn't mean to do that. In fact, as I was writing this book, Zoe, I went round to mum's. You know, I help look after mum now. She's 81, pretty immobile. I'm round to see her most days. And I said, hey, mum, can I ask you, why would you say that stuff to me? Why would you and dad say that stuff to me when I came back from school? And she said, well, I just know how capable you are. So I wanted you to be the very best that you could be. And she said, well, I didn't do the same with your brother. You know, he has different capabilities to you. So what's really interesting for me is there's one reality, but there's many different perceptions of that reality. Mum and dad are doing this from a place of love. They want the best of me, so I don't face struggling like they thought if I get straight A's and go to a top university and get a top job like being a doctor, I can buy a house, I can have no problems in life. But little Rongan absorbs the idea that he's only worthy when he's the best. And that is very toxic because on the outside, I have succeeded in life, Zoe, right? People would look at me from the outside and go, you know, what are you complaining about, mate? You're a doctor. You've got four international best-selling books out. Your podcast is listened to by millions every week, right? From the outside, I've ticked off society's definition of success. But in the early part of my career, I still felt a deep void inside me, even with this external metric of success. And I don't know if you ever heard the conversation where Pippa Grange came onto my podcast. She's a psychologist. And she works with all kinds of organizations. She did work with the England football team a few years ago. And she has this gorgeous concept, winning shallow or winning deep. And Winning shallow is how I feel I've won for a lot of my life. Yes, I've succeeded. I've come top. I've competed and come out top. But there was an emptiness inside. There was a void. Winning deep is when you win from a place of love and abundance. So she would tell the story of, you know, she's worked with some of the most highly paid footballers on the planet. And she recounts stories of these guys would say, I thought my dream my whole life was to win the FA Cup. I'm at Wembley, I'm picking up the trophy, got the medal, and as I'm walking down the stairs, I feel discontented inside. I feel unhappy. I feel worthless. Because we think that that's going to make us happy, but it doesn't. It doesn't fix the hole in the heart that we have inside of us. And that was me. But I have 
I think pretty much fixed that hole in my heart. Or certainly it's a lot smaller than it used to be. Even last time I spoke to you, Zoe, where I feel I was really on this personal growth journey, even compared to that, I'm as happy and content as I've ever felt. And then going back to that part of your question, which is, is there a part of you that feels angry? No, I generally don't do anger anymore because I found it to be an unhelpful emotion for me. I very much these days have trained myself to accept that was the way it was for dad. He did what he felt he had to do. I'm not going to waste my energy feeling angry about it. Again, going back to something I said before, I believe the way we are ripples into everyone around us. So the old wrong and sure would want to get angry and make it right. But actually that in itself, I've certainly found for myself, that's a toxic emotion because you're not coming from a place of love and acceptance and abundance. You're coming from a place of almost revenge. So I don't feel angry. I used to. So yes, I feel that there is a, not an angry activism in this book, but a compassionate activism, a kind activism that I hope people lead with curiosity. We're just going to take a short break from the episode. And I'm really excited because my sponsor this week is a product I use every day. So I'd heard of Athletic Greens on my friend Rongan Chatterjee's podcast. And I thought about it. It was only when I saw my husband Guy had started taking it. And I noticed a massive difference in his energy levels and the quality of his sleep. He's quite a bad sleeper and he was sleeping way, way, way better. So I thought I need to get me some of this. So I have been taking Athletic Greens every day since October and my energy levels have never been higher. Well, since having the girls. I take it first thing in the morning, right after I've made the girls porridge. It's super simple. It actually tastes quite nice. So with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole sourced superfoods, easy for me to say, probiotics and adaptogens. It takes minutes to mix it up. So with very little time in our busy, busy, busy lives, taking my Athletic Greens is one thing I can do every single day to take care of myself. Every time I have it, I feel like I'm showing myself through my actions that I deserve to feel good and I'm worth looking after. It helps me remember my mantra. I can only be the mother I want to be when I look after myself too. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year's supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Very important. That's athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Back to today's episode. You know, I, I had exactly the same experience in so many ways. And, you know, I never felt smart, I never felt smart. And I decided that if I could get a first in economics, which was my degree, despite being almost numerically dyslexic, I still don't know how I did it. And I remember the day that I got that first, I would have been what, 21. It was one of the worst days of my life because I remember getting that result and I didn't feel any different. And I remember the thought clear as day, which was shit. 
So if this isn't it. What is? And it petrified me because I didn't know the answer. So what you just shared, I can almost guarantee, as I'm sure you can, that quite a lot of people who are listening or watching to this right now know exactly what you are talking about. They may be in the midst of this kind of struggle in terms of, is this it really? Is this life? They might say, well, I've got a roof over my head. I can afford food and like my holiday each year. But is this all there is? And it's not to say that these things aren't of any value at all. I think it's how you identify with them that's key. Like if you think it's going to make you happy, I think that's where the problem lies. And again, going into one of the reasons why, and I share a lot about this and what people can do about this in the book, this is all really in chapter one, really to open up what is the definition of happiness for you? How can you redefine it? How can you redefine success? How can you figure out what your values are? How can you figure out what your true identity is? Identity is key because People will say, or I might have said a few years ago, you know, people say, you know, what do you do? Who are you? So, well, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a father, whatever, right? But I think getting too attached to these identities is actually really very, very problematic. So, for example, the identity of a doctor. If you strongly identify with that, you know, I'm a doctor, that's who I am, that defines me. Well, you're putting yourself in a very fragile position because what happens if you get fired from your job? then you've got a big problem. If your whole identity is wrapped up in being a doctor, you've got a problem. Once well, if you get sick and you can't work for six months, that happens. That happened to my dad and then he had to medically retire. Now you've got a big problem. What happens when you retire? This is super common, Zoe. People retire and they've lost their sense of self because it was all wrapped up in their job. So being a doctor is one of the roles that I play. It's not who I am. We get so attached to these roles that you could say, oh, I'm a doctor. So, you know, what's a doctor look like? Well, you know, a doctor should dress like this and a doctor drives a car like this. This may sound ridiculous. I know so many doctors who are like that. And I know so many doctors who are really unhappy. They've chosen the wrong career for them. They did it because they were good academically and they thought I should probably go into medicine or law or one of these jobs. They're now stuck in their 30s with a mortgage and a lease on their car can't stand their jobs. So what do they do? They get smashed on a Friday and Saturday night. That is a compensation. That is their way of trying to redress the balance of the fact that they're discontented. So they thought, oh, you know, if I get this prestigious title of doctor and I do this and I'm looked up to by society and all this noise you create in your mind, well, that's not true happiness. What about me as a father? This may be relevant to your audience, Zoe, in particular. I don't even identify as a father anymore. And what I mean by that is this, being a father is a role that I play. It's not who I am. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that, because again, I'm not insisting that anyone else feels this way about their role as a parent. What I'm offering, I hope, is some different ways to potentially think about our lives. So being a father is probably the most important role in my life. It's something I take very seriously. It's something I really put a lot of thought and effort into, into how my wife and I parent our children, what example am I setting, what mistakes do I not want to fall into that I now perceive myself to have fallen into. And I've seen this with patients and friends. Let's say someone's listening to this and being a mum is who they are. Okay. Well, let's just extend that out a little bit. 
What happens if when your kids are a little bit older, I'm thinking of one patient in particular at the moment who would keep saying, yeah, I'm a, you know, I know there's all kinds of things going on in my life that aren't great, but I'm a great mum. I'm a fantastic mum. She would always tell me that. I thought, okay, great. You know, good for your kids. It's amazing that you're a great mum. But what was really interesting is that there was a fragile identity being built up around that. So when the kids are teenagers and they come home one day and go, you're a crap mum. Can't believe you did this. You're such a bad mum. Maybe just in a moment of anger, she felt worthless. She'd then drink booze in the evening to help her numb that pain because in her head, she was a good mum. And it was so fragile that as soon as it gets challenged, she falls to pieces. This is one of the things, and I'm trying to be very careful with my words. You know, I'm a man talking about mothers. I've got to be very, very careful. And I want to be very careful and respectful. But I can talk about my experience as a doctor. One of the things that I've seen, let's say when kids leave home, and I've seen this with many mums, there is a real hole in their life. And I understand that there's multiple reasons for that. I'm suggesting that potentially one role or one reason for that is that we clung too tight to that as our identity. So, you know, there's a whole section on this in the book if people are interested in learning more. But I guess my take home for people and for myself is instead of identifying with these roles, I now identify with my values. So I've done a lot of work on trying to come up with what my three core values are. And it's something I'm constantly refining and tweaking. But as we record this conversation, Zoe, the three values that I think encompass me the most in terms of alignment, in terms of who I think I am and who I would like to be are integrity, compassion, and curiosity. Now, what I love about values for people is that then you can bring those values into every part of your life. When you are being a mother or a father, I can make sure I act with integrity, compassion, and curiosity. When I'm a doctor, with my patients, with my colleagues, I can interact with integrity, compassion, and curiosity. When I'm in the local coffee shop ordering my coffee, I can interact with the staff there and the other people in the queue there with integrity, compassion, curiosity. It almost becomes this bubble of resilience that I take around with me that I can make sure that I'm living in accordance with my values in whatever role I'm playing in life. And why I think that has real practical take-home for people, Zoe, is another thing I've been thinking about, and I know you've probably spoken about this on your show before, but you've probably seen these kind of videos and memes around that it's not about happiness, it's about meaning. And I thought long and hard about this when I was writing this book. I thought, well, sure, meaning and purpose are great things to pursue and try and get in our lives. But is that the same thing as happiness? When you look at it through the lens of my core happiness tool, I don't think it is. Meaning and purpose is an essential ingredient, I think, for happiness. It's certainly a helpful ingredient, but it's not happiness in and of itself because you could make the case that let's say in World War II, there could have been a soldier fighting against the Nazis. One might try and make the case that that soldier was leading a meaningful life, but it doesn't mean they were happy, right? Let's take it to the current day, this whole thing around meaning and purpose, which I support looking for meaning and purpose, but let's say you have your dream job that gives you that strong sense of meaning and purpose. Great. 
you could still be working too hard. You could still be getting stressed out. You could still be neglecting some of the really important things in your life, like your relationships. So that's why I like this three-leg stool, because you can like work on these different legs and try and get some balance between them. And so I think meaning and purpose comes under the alignment leg. Sure, get some meaning and purpose in your life, be more aligned, brilliant, but also let's make sure you're working on contentment and control. And what it also means, Zoe, is that for someone out there who's listening, and this is one of the problems with the meaning and purpose narrative sometimes for people is that they go, well, I don't know what my meaning and purpose is. Oh, it's great for you that you found your meaning and purpose and you're living this wonderful life, but I'm working in a call center to pay my bills. What's meaning and purpose got to do with me? And that's where I think the alignment leg and values comes in because if that person working in the call center, or frankly anywhere, that potentially may not be their dream job, well, figure out what your values are, write them down somewhere, tweak them every Sunday, go, does this fit right or do I need to change them? And then assess each day, am I living my life with those values? Because let's say that person, one of their values is kindness. They may not like their job, but if when they buy their coffee in the morning, if they're kind to the barista, when they get on the bus and they're kind to the bus driver, when they're at work, they're kind to their colleagues and they're kind to the clients who they're calling, well, you know what? I would argue that they are leading a life of meaning. And the more that they do that, the more they're likely to find those kind of other opportunities and jobs that they may want to change in the future. So I think this whole piece around identity and values is a really key thing for each and every single one of us to get right. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Unlocking and understanding my values has been transformational for me. What are your values? Curiosity, unsurprisingly, compassion, and adventure. Love it. I just feel uplifted just from actually hearing someone else's values. What a wonderful world it would be if we all shared our values with everyone. I know. And I've been inspired by you because you have your values. The first thing that people see when they land on your Instagram page, and I thought, I want to do that. Wouldn't that be incredible if we could elevate that conversation around values? That that's the first thing that we might find out about someone. I mean, imagine asking someone that you met at a party, what are your values? It's just so much more powerful than what do you do or exactly that? What are your labels? Because you're getting to the soul of someone, the, the essence of someone. Sirongan, so you've written a book on happiness and I know the depth of knowledge that you have, but I'm wondering what are you still learning or what do you not know yet that you wish you knew about happiness? What am I still learning? I'm learning more and more about myself and happiness every single day. Because that's the thing about knowledge, or even this book that I'm incredibly proud of. It's not a final destination. It doesn't mean that just because I can write a book on this and share practical tools, that suddenly I'm as chilled out as a Buddhist monk. No, this is a process. This is not a final destination. This is a skill that you can work on. That's one of the central messages, Zoe, in the book is happiness is not this kind of vague, ethereal thing that one day you're just going to stumble across. No, just as if you lift weights in a gym, you're going to get bigger muscles. If you work on your core happiness every day, every week, little by little, you're going to feel happier, calmer, more in control, more content, less triggered by other people. So, 
I'm constantly developing the skill and using the 10 principles in the book. I'm using them in my everyday life. The one I use every single day, probably bar none. I can't remember a day where this hasn't happened for a long time. I think this is very relevant to the question you're asking me. That principle, that you know, chapter five, it's called seek out friction. And this is probably the thing that's changed me for the better the most. It's this idea that when we rub up the wrong way against another person in some sort of social interaction, whether it's an email from your boss, whether it's someone jumping into the queue in front of you in a cafe or at the supermarket, someone barging you on the train, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, these things happen all the time. Number one, I've recognized that we have a choice in how we respond and what we think. And even the awareness that you have a choice is a revelation for some people. It was a revelation for me a few years ago. But as you work on it and you practice it, that space in which you get to choose your response gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So yes, it may always just be like a second, but that feeling of a second now it feels like I've got 10 minutes to choose how am I going to respond in this moment. So it's this idea that every time that happens, so let's say oh, I post something on Instagram and someone leaves a nasty comment or a negative comment that I read. Instead of wishing that they hadn't left that comment or getting frustrated and think, God, I can't believe they did that. Do they not understand what I was trying to get across? All this kind of narrative that I used to do, <laughs> right, that we can all do, I then turn the ship around. I put the mirror up and go, okay, forget about them. If you're waiting for the world around you to change in order for you to be happy, you're going to be waiting a long, long time. So I use it as a very powerful opportunity for me to learn something. So I ask myself, Rongan, why are you getting triggered here? Why is that comment bothering you? Is it because you're knackered and you haven't slept well for a few nights and you know, you're feeling a bit emotionally fragile? Maybe you need an early night tonight? Or is it because, I don't know, they've highlighted an insecurity that you have inside and actually they've just hit at that insecurity. So this is actually not about them. It's about me. Or is there a bit of truth in what they said? Can I learn something from them? I go, yeah, you know, that's a good point. Maybe next time I post about this topic, I can caveat it like this. What it is, it puts me in control, right? It makes me the architect of my own health and happiness. So that is something I continually work on. So every day, I'm learning something about myself, right? Only this week, Zoe, this whole idea of competition and only feeling loved when you're at the top of your game, which is the thing that we've been speaking about. I thought I was pretty good with that. I thought, yeah. I'm cool with that. Like I'm, I've sort of worked on that. And then something came up and I noticed that old primitive pattern coming in. And I was a bit frustrated at first. And then actually I thought, hey, this is another learning opportunity. Great. Oh, you thought this was done. No, no, no. Maybe you're 80% better than you were, but you still got a bit of work to do. Great. So I've got loads to still learn because the principles I feel are universal that I've written about in the book, the principles are going to work for people right now. They're going to work next year. They're going to work in five years. They're going to work in 10 years. But the learnings, the learnings are going to be fresh for each and every single one of us. So I'm learning every single day. So I welcome social friction now. 
And I promise you, I'm not just saying that, Zoe. I actively welcome it because I think, wow, I've been given an opportunity now to learn about myself. It's almost like you're stress testing your system. Without that stress on it, there are these hidden parts of yourself that you're not aware of. So you go bumbling around life thinking you're totally cool with things. And then something does happen and you blow up and have a row with someone. Well, if you adopt this approach, every day is a school day. And what that's resulted in is me being just a lot less reactive in general and more able to realize that I have a choice in every situation. The thing relating to that, and I think, yeah, I've also written about that in this chapter, is this idea that in every situation in life, or pretty much every situation, but I would say every situation, you have the opportunity to write a happiness story about it. Let's say someone cuts you up on the road. You can go into that victim mindset and, oh man, I can't believe they did that. What were they thinking? They shouldn't be on the road. Someone should phone up and complain about them. Fine, whatever. We all know that stuff. We all may have been through that. And I'm not criticizing anyone for doing that. I have been that person before who went down that route, but it's disempowering. It's giving your power to someone else. It's like, no, someone else's actions are going to be responsible for my well-being. That is a fragile place to put your health and well-being in. So it's like, no, well, how can you write a happiness story there? Oh, maybe that person is rushing their pregnant wife to the hospital to give birth. Maybe that lady had a daughter who was up with earache last night. She's knackered and she's scared that she's going to lose her job, whatever. Well, let's make it more real and something that's happened more recently for many people. March, April, 2020, toilet roll shortage in supermarkets. Front page news, everyone's getting all triggered and everyone's talking about, oh, who are these people who are getting all these rolls of toilet roll, you know, getting angry, bringing emotional stress into their own bodies, which is affecting their own lives because someone else may have done something. Well, let's look at that scenario and let's try and figure out, well, how can we write happiness stories? Well, maybe when we're looking at the news and they're showing the empty shelves at the end of the day, maybe something that happened is every shopper that day took one extra roll. And so by the end of the day, Actually, it's empty, but no one really did anything that bad. It was just everyone getting one extra. Okay, that's one option. What else might have happened? Oh, well, maybe someone is suffering with Crohn's disease and they've got diarrhea 20 times a day at home. And actually, they are literally panicked out of their skulls about their social awkwardness, their personal hygiene, whatever. And they actually went and bought 20 big four packs because they were worried. Okay. That could be possible. Maybe someone is actually buying them and selling them on eBay for a profit. What can you do in that situation? Well, it's like, oh, well, maybe that person has got no money. They feel they have no opportunity in life. They can't see any options for growth or a better job. And they think, you know what? This is the best opportunity I've had in two years to actually make a bit of money to feed me and my wife and my kids. I'm going to take it. Are they really scumbags? Or would we not do the same thing if we were in their position? And that's the phrase. This one phrase really has changed my life. It's this idea that if I were that person, I'd be doing exactly the same thing as them. I've been thinking about this for a year. It was really brought home to me in a conversation I had with Peter Crone on my podcast. It's such a compassionate way to look at life, Zoe. In fact, if people take nothing from this conversation apart from that one thing and they try and apply it, I guarantee it will improve your life. Because if you recognize that if I was that person with their childhood, 
with their parents, with all their experiences, with their bullying at school, with their opportunities, you know what? I'd be acting and behaving in exactly the same way as they are. It doesn't mean I like it, but can I understand it? I can totally understand it. And yeah, I really would go as far as to say that sentiment has probably done more to increase my levels of happiness and calmness and contentment, I think, probably than anything else. Such a powerful idea, isn't it? And what I always think about that is even if that more positive, happy story I make up isn't true, it doesn't matter because I still get the effect of feeling compassion and calm and it doesn't bother me. And I say it to my kids all the time out loud when stuff like that happens, you know, when we get cut up, I'll say, oh my gosh, they must be really rushing. And I say it out loud almost to remind myself to have the compassion. Or if we get stuck in a traffic jam, I'll say, I don't know why girls, but life wants us to sit here for a bit today. Maybe it's to listen to one more song. Love it. What a lovely thing you're doing for your kids as well, Zoe. Well, it keeps me calmer, right? It keeps me calmer. And I think one of the big things that I learned from the book and I continue to learn from you is about responding to life, not reacting to it. And everything that you're talking about and everything you talk in the book, you know, defining what success means for you. What are your values? What is important to you? How do you want to spend your time? What thoughts do you want to choose? What thoughts do you want to get wrapped up? It's all about responding to life, not just being victims and reacting to everything that's going on around us, which is almost where we started, wasn't it? With the horrific things going on in the world. You know, how can we respond to that and not react to it, I think is an absolutely life-changing, as you just shared, concept. It's life-changing. It is. And so just to finish that point, I understand, depending on where you're at currently in your life, that may be quite a big sell. Be like, what, really? What about when people behave like idiots? You know, how can I rewrite the story there? You know, well, what about when really bad things happen, right? Well, you know, people often ask me, which conversation did I have on my podcast, which has changed me the most? And I always struggle to answer. Certainly one conversation that would be in the top three, let's put it like that, is my one with Edith Eager from a couple of years ago. Now, Edith Eager, when I had the conversation with her, was 93 years old. When she was 16, she went to Auschwitz. So she was 16 years old. She's got a date with her boyfriend that night, I think, which she's quite excited about. She wants to get ready for. They get a knock on the door. Her two parents, her and her sister, get put on a train to the concentration camp, Auschwitz. Within two hours of getting there, her parents are murdered. Later that day, if my recollection is correct, she had to dance for some of the prison guards. And she said, the last thing my mum said to me was, Edie, nobody can take away from you what you put inside your mind. And so she said to me, yeah, I was dancing, but I wasn't dancing in Auschwitz. In my mind, I was dancing in Budapest Opera House. There was a full crowd. There was an orchestra behind me. That's what I was dancing. And I thought, that's pretty incredible in that moment. And then she went on to say, you know, Dr. Chashi, when I was in Auschwitz, I wasn't a prisoner. The prison guards, they were in prison. In my mind, I was free. And that really was such a powerful conversation because one of the last things she said to me was, I've been in Auschwitz for many years, and I can tell you this, the greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your own mind. And I think about that every day. 
Whenever I think I cannot rewrite a story, what I call create a happiness story, write a happiness story in every situation, write a story that empowers you, not a story that holds you hostage. I think about her and I think, well, if Edith Eager can do that in the absolute hell of Auschwitz, you know what? I think many of us, most of us, potentially all of us might be able to do that with many of the things in our day-to-day lives, it's practice. You know, I promise it's practice. Five or six years ago, I found it hard. Now, I actually find it a piece of cake because I've trained myself. If someone was going to run a marathon, they wouldn't expect to try it once and go for a jog. And if they couldn't do it, they say, oh, I can't do a marathon. No, you understand. You've Okay, let's make it easier. A 5K right? The local park run. If you've never run before, you wouldn't expect to be able to go and just do the park run. You think, well, maybe I need to couch the 5k app. Maybe I need to do a bit of walking and running. This is the same. Start small, pick one thing a week, try and rewrite a different story, one that empowers you, one that doesn't hold you hostage and make you a victim and see how you feel. If after a few weeks, you don't like the way you feel, okay, forget it. Say the guy's talking rubbish. I ain't going to follow his advice. No problem. You know, I'm not attached anymore to whether people do or don't. You know, I'm not trying to tell someone to do anything. What I'm trying to do, I think, if I'm honest, I think I've, done, I've taken this approach in all of my books. I've never been someone to tell people what to do. I've never done that with my patients. I don't think any human wants to be told what to do by someone else. For me, it's about empowerment. It's an invitation to consider a different way of living. It's an invitation, actually, to choose happiness. Say, actually, no matter where you are right now, if your life, if you're feeling overwhelmed and close to burnout, or if you feel life is pretty good, but is this all there is? Is there something missing? I am, with all my heart, convinced that these 10 universal principles in this book, I am convinced will help anyone. They continue to help me. And yeah, I just hope you will give it a chance and pick it up and adopt it because I think when we can be that change for ourselves and be compassionate towards ourselves, which is really, really important, we're naturally more compassionate to the people around us. And that's how we create a kinder and more compassionate world. So powerful, Rongan. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I mean, the immediate sort of obvious thing to say would be some time to themselves each day, because I think that's really important. But I'm not going to answer it with that, because I do think that's important. But I think the most important gift to give every mother is the knowledge that what you do really, really matters. Being a mum is arguably the most important role that we have across the world. You are literally forming and carrying a new life inside of you. You're giving birth to that life. You're feeding that life. You're bringing up that person into the world. And how you do that dictates the kind of world in which we live. I know every single mother wherever they are on the planet, is doing their best with where they are in their life, with the means that they have, with the knowledge that they have, with the education that they have. I know that. I'm not someone to judge. I know every person is doing their best, but it's an important role. It's a role I respect so, so much, even more so 
since I became a father myself, I've seen what role a mother plays in a child's life. And I also want to leave this thought that don't beat yourself up if you're not doing it to the level that you have in your head. No one does. Absolutely no one does. There's no rule book. There's no perfect way to do this. No matter what we do, our kids will probably interpret things a certain way at some point. You're doing the best that you can. Keep on doing the best you can. And what you do really, really matters. And I truly appreciate it. Thank you, Rongan. That's really, really beautiful. Thanks, Zoe. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.